I am Dave Anthony, and this is who I am. My guest today is the writer, comedian, actor, and co-host and creator of the podcast, The Dollop, Dave Anthony. Hi, Dave. Thank Hi. You. Thanks for coming down. <laughs> <laughs> hey, how are you? Yeah, good, good. How you doing? Uh, I'm holding okay. together? What? Are you holding together? Okay. Um, yes. I had my big freak out um, months ago. Mm -hmm. A lot of people witnessed it, and they were like, why is he freaking out? And I'm like, because I see what's coming. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I had my freak out uh, in May when when Hill when the Democrats chose Hillary over Bernie, and I mm -hmm. went, "Oh God, you're you've just chosen Trump to be your president." Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that, that was I was at work um, around the time that that was happening, and I think Brexit was happening a little while after that. I think that was yeah. June or July. Yeah, um, Brexit was a big part of my thinking. Yeah, yeah, and people kept coming up, and they had the they had a smile on their face because partly because they didn't really know what was happening and partly because it was like god you guys are making a mess aren't you and yeah i was just shaking my head going you don't get it yeah <laughs> keep, keep all, watching yeah this is all over the world yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah that was really interesting to see the the snooty reaction to to the future mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's fun. it's interesting to watch people's reactions though and how people handle it and yeah yeah everyone's got their own different way putting their head in the sand or uh fighting against changing their way of thinking yeah a big one <laughs> yeah. to explore other things yeah <laughs> <It's> okay <laughs> we'll see so um you about you you are a so you started as a stand-up comedian yeah um, way uh, back decades ago right right that's what i always wanted to do since i was a kid mm -hmm. stand-up comedy so i started that in Oh boy, eighty. I think the first time I went on stage was eighty nine. Mm -hmm. And was this in San Francisco? Yeah, so in San Francisco. There? I lived. I lived just north of San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And then I went to college in Santa Barbara. So I would. I don't know why I never drove to L.A. to do stand up because it's an hour and a half away. But I would drive the you know seven hours back to San Francisco. <laughs> <to do stand> -up. <laughs> then I, there weren't great uh, calls made back then, but mm. I did that for a while, commuting in school and doing it in the summer. Right. And then in ninety three, I just did it. You know, started doing it full time, mm -hmm. full bore, as it were. And what was the scene like in San Francisco for comedy? Was okay, it? so that was one of the best scenes that maybe has ever been for stand up comedy. We had, there was, um, like in other cities at that time, there was a, a push to just make the audience laugh. Mm -hmm. And in San Francisco, there was a push to be as different as you could and make the audience laugh. Right. So, you know, you had Pat Oswalt and, and Greg Barrett and Margaret Cho and Mark Marin and um, Mitch Hedberg came around, Jake mm -hmm. Johansson. So you had, I mean, it was the place where Bobcat Goldthwait came from and Robin Williams. So it just kind of, it just kind of it pushed people to be super different. And it was, uh, it made for some, like, I mean, we just had times that I think that they, like they didn't have in other cities where, like Patton, I remember Patton did a night called the, Four nights of comedy, or was it four weekends? But it was at this little club called Holy City Zoo. It was called Four uh, Four Nights of the Apocalypse, and he just picked the darkest comedians he could find mm -hmm. from the city. And so then it was just the people trying to outdark each other. And it was just stuff like that <laughs> happened all the time. Right. 
So it was really trying to sort of explore the boundaries of what we could do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's pretty mm-hmm. great. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, I, I mean, in the, at that time, I was in London and, and it was very much like uh, the whole theme there was whose line is it anyway, pretty yeah. much. You would go to a comedy store and it would just be, you'd see people that, that they had a, a British version of the show. And most of the people that appeared on that, the comedians would just repeat the show. Yeah, ad nauseum. There. Yeah, and it's it was like it, it's really crazy when you would, because you would see comedians come in. We had a Simpson comedy competition. It was fairly prestigious at the time, I guess. And so comedians from all over the country would come once a year. I think forty of them. Mm-hmm. And it they you would just see them kind of like looking at the San Francisco comedians, going, "Wait, what's happening? <laughs> Why is there a guy with a white makeup on just screaming in a cape?" <laughs> and you'd be like, well, "I don't know, but it's funny." And uh, and yeah, I saw. I don't think it was happening in. I mean, it might have been happening in some other places, but we were definitely onto something unique. I think there was a little something unique going on in Boston at that time, mm-hmm. with uh, like Janine and David Cross. Um, but they were again. They were alternative comedy. The main main comedy in Boston was very mainstream. Um, so we had a really unique thing going on. It's funny I, when I was. When I just moved here, Mitch Hedberg came up to me and he said, he said, you totally changed my career. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he said, well, I was going to, we were talking one time and you said, I was thinking about going on the road and doing a lot of road work. And mm-hmm. and I said to him, don't do that. And he goes, yeah, but I don't want to work a job anymore. I, go, I know, but you, <clears throat> then you'll lose your unique voice because if you go out to Vacaville and Fairfield and all these little places and start doing gigs, then you'll start to conform to the audience as opposed to doing making what you think is funny, funny to mm-hmm. the audience. And that wasn't something that I thought of. That was something that Jake Johansson told me that someone else probably told him from San Francisco. It was just like a San Francisco way of thinking. Mm-hmm. And uh, and he, so he's like, so you totally changed my career. And I was like, well, that's because Jake changed my career. And <laughs> like, that's just the thing that got passed on. It was like this sort of, yeah, that makes sense to all of us. But other comics just want to start doing comedy as fast as they can and hit the road. And mm-hmm. once you do that, your act is, it just becomes kind of homogenized because mm. you have to make those crowds laugh or you don't make money. You don't get asked back. Right. And if you're doing something really weird, they just stare at you and then that's it. <laughs> <laughs> but if you keep doing the weird thing for five years in a city and make it work, then you can go on the road and make it work. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, you know, but it's hard to, you know, it's also hard to work a stupid job when you want to be creative. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What were you doing at that time? Do you remember? Uh, so let's see. So after I got out of college, I think I worked. I, yeah, I was mostly just a bank teller. Because mm. uh, the thing about being a bank teller, it was part time. So I could finesse the hours to occasionally go do a gig. Right. But more than that, I could get up late. I mean, that was the main thing. Just not having a job where you had to get up at 8 a.m. is like half the battle because yeah. you're out so late, you know? So for me, a bank teller. And I lived with my dad, so I didn't have to pay rent uh, until... That's like one of the keys to most stand comedians. <laughs> 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 not having to pay rent until you're older. Uh, so that, you know, that helped a lot, not not having to like pay for my room and board. Then I, yeah. then I just needed money for, you know, whatever, car and insurance and... Then you can get by with a part-time job. Yeah, I think that's key for everyone now. Yeah, much, but and there's no health insurance back then. That's something <laughs> you're worried about. <laughs> uh, you said you wanted to do it since you were a kid. Yeah, yeah. Since I was like five, I can't remember wanting to do anything else. Right, and was I, that the the usual thing of like you made 
your class laugh or you, you I, I didn't you know it's so funny I, I when I read David Letterman's autobiography I was like yes that's what I did so I was the guy who made fun of the loud class clown mm-hmm. <laughs> you know <laughs> you what I mean the <laughs> and they're funny when I was uh, when I was in when I I was doing stand up for like five years the class clown from high school sent me an email or a message and he said he wanted to uh, be my writer and i was like i don't know i don't know if you know that this works but i used to make fun of you (laughs) so yeah i always wanted to do it since i was a kid i used to sit around and watch um the nbc had you know the the tonight show so i'd watch carson Mm -hmm. i I would always stay up really late and then uh and then saturday night live and after saturday night live was evening of the improv so that was sort of my fall asleep every night watching, or not every night, but on Saturday nights watching any of the improv. Like, I'd watch as much stand-up as I could, just take it all in. Mm-hmm. I don't think I told anybody I wanted to be a stand-up, though, until I was, like, 23. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, so, uh, so yeah, so it's it's kind of weird when you when you end up doing what you always wanted to do, because I, I found mm. out later in life that that's not what most people uh, have. Yeah. 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 What did you do at college? I studied, um, uh, first I studied geology. Uh-huh. And then, uh, and then, I looked at the organic chemistry portion of the degree, and I was like, "Oh, I'm not going to do that." <laughs> uh, so I switched to physical geography, which is just the study of the earth. So mm-hmm. that's why I'm so environmentally minded. Mm. Um, so that's what I got my degree in. Yeah. Okay. And when did you start traveling? When did you do you remember the the moment where you said, "Okay, I've got enough now that I can go out and well." So, do uh, so I was. I want to say '94. I was um, I was in San Francisco, and there's a comedian who. There's always these comedians who find a weird way to make a living doing it. Mm-hmm. It's like an offshoot of what comedy is, right? So there was a college gig that was there was a company in Michigan, and they put on. Um, I think they bought the rights to make me laugh, to be able to do it in colleges. Mm-hmm. Uh, so <coughs> they would hire, th- they would hire a comedian and he would hire two comedians. So there'd be three of us in a van and we'd drive around and we'd have this wheel that we spun for like a contest and we would do make me laugh at colleges. But the benefit being that we could do 10 minutes of stand up each before we did the game show. Mm-hmm. So we're really just doing this horror I mean, thing. It was terrible. <laughs> <making that thing. laughs> but we were just doing it to get the 10 minutes of time every night. Um, so I did that. <coughs> I did that for three months. So that was like my jump out of uh, a regular job. Mm-hmm. And then as soon as I was done with that, I had enough money and I moved to New York City. Okay. And then I ha- I think since then, I worked a couple years in New York with a job when I wanted to leave New York. But um, besides those two years and one year working here, I think that's all I've, that's, that's it for jobs. Mm. After that, I have all those years. So 20 um, odd years I've, been able to just get by with only three years of working a day job. So <laughs> that's good. Yeah, it's pretty good. Hmm. And um, when when you got to New York, when did you start writing? When did you start that's realizing f- that you could? <laughs> well, that's funny. So I got to New York, and I was so so I kind of hit the ground running stand up wise because Marin and Caroline Ray recommended me at the Comedy Cellar, which is like one of the big clubs. So mm-hmm. I immediately was doing 
like within a week of landing there, I was doing four or five nights a week at the Comedy Cellar. I was following mm. David Tell every night. Mm. So that makes you a very strong comedian. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, and then I was working at the other clubs a little bit here and there. So it was steady. Um, and I, I've, I very distinctly remember, you know, when you get there, I don't know if it's this way now, but back in the day, they were all looking to give comedians deals for their own TV show. So that's all that show business was looking for was mm-hmm. like, can this guy be a show? And um, I remember I did a set when I first got there and an agent who now lives out here and is a PA guy, which is personal appearances. He um, he saw me and he goes, you're a quadruple threat. <laughs> I was like, I don't know what that means. He go, And he said, you can write, you can act, you're stand up. What was the other one? I don't remember. I don't remember what the car. So, and I was just like, I just want to be a stand-up. And he goes, No, no, you're a writer. And I remember, I remember I started having an argument with this guy mm-hmm. who was an agent, going, No. And he goes, No, you can write. And I was like, I don't want to be a writer. I want to be a stand-up, <laughs> which is so funny because I, I get much more joy out of <laughs> writing now. <laughs> but uh, so I pushed it off for a long time, and mm-hmm. uh, I would get, you know, you'd get the offers to submit stuff to different shows. The worst, although the worst one was Mr. Show. Like mm. I, I, I knew those guys, and and Odenkirk came out a couple times. I was like, you got to put together something for me. You got to put together a package for me. You got to put together something. And I would just be like, yeah, sure, buddy. Mm-hmm. And then when I saw the show, I was like, oh fuck, <laughs> 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 might have blown that. Uh, but um, I didn't. I just didn't. You know, most of the sh- most of the thing about the thing about writing. Then was it's very different than now. I think now there's more opportunity to really sort of have your own voice out there because mm-hmm. there's so many different shows that are uh, across so many different landscapes. Yeah. But back then it was just networks, right? I mean, mm. that's all you were talking about. And maybe e- cable shows, cable channels didn't do comedies. No. Back then, so you had you had the network sitcoms, which I just have never, th- I just don't understand how yeah. how you write for them. And then, uh, and then there was talk shows, which to me, I had a friend, Tom Magna, who was just a really brilliant comedian. And when Conan started, he wrote the monologues for like three years. Mm. Uh, and, and he's a great, very disciplined writer. And, but he was miserable. <laughs> so, and, and, and uh, Attell, when Attell would get a writing job, Attell would be miserable. So right. I, I, I sort of feel, felt like, like sort of, I don't know how to say it, like spiritually as a comedian, I related to those guys. Mm-hmm. And so when I saw how the effect it had on them and they couldn't do comedy, which is what they really want to do, then I was like, well, that's not what I want to do. Yeah. And also, I don't think there's anything um, rewarding about writing for a late night talk show. Mm. I think it's just, it's almost paper pushing. It's that you get at a desk every day, you do the exact same thing. Yeah. I mean, sure, you make some people laugh, but you're you're not advancing in any way creatively. Mm-hmm. So it didn't. I don't know. I just never did it. But yeah. I was always asked to to submit and try to do it. Hmm. And there wasn't really a um, uh, like a, a radio uh, comedy radio voice. It was there in England. There was always no. Like it's not like England, Australia, where there's this huge comedy radio. Yeah, sort of crossover where you you almost. They sort of look for that here. Here, radio is filled with um, failed comedians. <laughs> the morning guys—they all want to be comedians. Yeah. Didn't work. And I think there's a little bit of bitterness there, or well, now they're in politics. But uh, yeah, right. 
yeah, so it's not the same thing, which is always sort of fascinating because uh, I know I know there's a couple guys, a few guys that have switched over to radio, but you think it would be more of it, mm. but no, it's interesting. When did you start uh, putting together packets? Do you remember when you made that? <sighs> I never did. Okay, so <laughs> <clears throat> I put together a sketch packet when I got here. Mm-hmm. I definitely had a joke writing packet for talk shows when I got here. I'm not sure if I did that before I got here. I just knew that when I came out here that I had to sort of have all that stuff ready to go mm-hmm. in case I needed to get a job. I ended up working at Staples Center. <laughs> 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 uh, <clears throat> yeah, so I had a sketch packet. I mean, I think, yeah, when I got out here, Bob Odenkirk hired me to write on a pilot that didn't go. And then because of that, I met other people in that circle who then would bring me on their pilot. So it was just a bunch of different pilots. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I, I had n- I did not write a spec. Mm. I was not interested in writing a spec. I wrote movies, um, so I would I got some rewrite jobs and stuff like that on on films. Mm-hmm. But again, uh, being someone who acts and writes, when you go out and read the writing, you. As a writer, I didn't think, oh, I can do something better. I thought, well, this system is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it's a because uh, I know they're good writers. It's the system that that creates the shit writing. Right. So uh, I would read it, and I you wouldn't know how to act the words because they were so ridiculous, mm-hmm. so geared toward a joke that there was nothing there to yeah. act. And so I I've never want I never wanted to write a spec. So I had I had the sketch and I had the jokes but that's all i had mm-hmm. and I, I'm, i've always been pushed by spec I, even now my agents like you gotta write a new spec i'm like yeah I know. <laughs> <laughs> when did you start acting um i guess i started acting in new york uh, in commercials i mean i i, I took a two-year acting program in new york with mm-hmm. a, who was then i guess considered a fairly fairly prestigious um acting teacher he was one of three guys that meisner taught his um, uh, his his real method too. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tony Hale was in my class, which was I think the biggest guy that came out of right. the twelve of us. Uh, so I did that, and 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 then I started getting I started getting commercial work. I especially started getting commercial work when I was out here, but I could never get an agent to uh, mm. send me out as an actor. I had one in New York, and it didn't work out because they had a there's so many things about this business you don't know so they had another guy that looked exactly like me so it turned out half the agency wasn't sending me out because they liked the other guy and the other half <laughs> the agency so like i was like why am i never going to nbc but just abc it's like oh well victoria handles abc it, j- it was so stupid um so then after when i got out here i couldn't get an agent i've never been able to get an agent uh I don't have an acting agent right now. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I've been on a television show. I don't have an acting agent. I'm trying to get one, but yeah. So the acting stuff was, uh, I did a lot of commercial work, mm. which to me is, it's so funny. Comedians would always make fun of it. And I'm like, yeah, but you're doing a f- uh, Uncle Chucklefucks in Ohio, <laughs> and I'm not. <laughs> so, okay. When yeah, did you I think back? that's the San Francisco thing where I know yeah. in, my, in my mind, I'm like, well, if I stay in, LA and just do comedy here it'll be my voice as opposed to if I hit the road again and because once it's a job yeah it's a whole different animal mm-hmm. yeah when you're going to hotels and motels yeah. and, and 
Well, that's depressing. Checking in at a certain hour and check yeah. um, It's so depressing. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Spend a weekend in Jacksonville. <laughs> <laughs> so you move back out to, um, to the West Coast. And did, yeah. when did you start working on um, uh, Suicide Girls and doing the writing? Oh, uh, so that was interesting. So I uh, moved out here in 2000. When, mm-hmm. did, when did Halo come out? Because that's when that started. Mm. So I was living here, and then I got in with all the the sort of Mr. Show sketch type guys. Mm-hmm. And then Halo came out, the video game Halo. And so... One of the guys was dating Paget Brewster, who is an actress. Um, she's on Criminal Minds and a bunch of other stuff. But she's a very funny uh, comedic actress, which I feel like has never been shown, but she's really, really funny. And so she was sort of in the circle, and she was dating one of the guys, and one of the guys was like, hey, why don't we have a LAN party where we hook up four TVs, and uh, we'll have 16 guys playing Halo when the game first came out. And so it was like, Brian Posehn, Jerry Miner, uh, Paul Tompkins, Steve Agee. Uh, it was just this group of absolutely hilarious guys that have all sort of taken off and become big now. And so we would sit there from uh, like 9 p.m. until 6 a.m. <laughs> every Saturday night playing Halo and just making each other laugh. And uh, and that went on for like a year and a half or mm-hmm. two years. And at some point in that, the guy who ran Suicide Girls, Sean, became a part of it. Mm-hmm. And he, I'm very opinionated politically, and he was like, we want a guy to write on our site who has like strong opinions. Mm-hmm. And so he hired me. And I, so then I had that as a like side gig writing on that site. Mm-hmm. Mm. And was this was around? Were you, were you starting to get into podcasting around then as well? Or no, was that, later? that was way before podcasting. Mm. I think I stopped Suicide Girls before I started podcasting. Okay, um, right, like right around this, right around when I stopped. I think then I transitioned to podcasting. Mm. Uh, so, two thousand. Oh boy, when did I start podcasting? Two thousand three, four, five, two thousand nine, two thousand eight. Something like that. Okay. Yeah. And that was the um, the walk in the room. Was that the first? Yeah, that yeah. was walk in the room. Walk in the room started. So I didn't know what podcasting was, mm-hmm. like I think most of America. <laughs> and back then I was on Facebook. And I kept seeing a couple people. Well, first of all, I saw I saw a couple. I saw some comedians start podcasts. And they were very popular, and I was like, "Well, I'm funnier than that guy." <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then, uh, and then I kept seeing some people talk about this podcast called "Oh Yeah, Dude," mm. and and then I remember someone linked to it, just put up a thing on Facebook of like, "This is the funniest episode I've ever heard," and I was like, "Well, I'll give this a shot." I listened to it, and I was like, "My God, this is like amazing!" And when I first moved here. Greg Barrington and I, it was during the dot-com boom. Mm-hmm. So we got hired to have a internet radio show, which at that point no one had broadband. So, <laughs> I mean, seriously, it was like 5% of the country had broadband <clears> and we're doing internet. And they're paying us tons of money. It was really crazy. Mm. Uh, and I was like, well, that's exactly what Greg and I did, essentially. Like, we were kind of taught how to do radio by radio experts. But at the same time, it was basically a podcast. Yeah. 
So I just called up Greg because um, my we just had our baby and uh, and I was kind of going just out of my mind because I was because I being a commercial actor, I could stay home with the baby all day or just bring the baby to auditions. Yeah, and he actually got me auditions because casting directors wanted to hold him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and my wife <clears throat> was uh, a therapist. She was uh, she was working at UCLA, but she was starting a private practice. So she was working six hours a day. So I was. With the kid for six days a week. Sorry, six days a, w- a week. So I was with him for six days a week, and um, I was going out of my mind. Mm-hmm. So I just I thought I'd start a podcast, and I tried to do one on my, on my own for a couple episodes, and I was like, well, this is ridiculous. Uh, so then I just called Greg and asked him if he wanted to do it, and and his career had sort of come off the talk show and book and kind of bottomed out. Mm-hmm. So we just started talking about like the realities of of getting somewhere in show business, and it's not where you thought it would be when you started. And and uh, I think we kind of tapped into something because it was after the after the crash, and uh, and there were a lot of people doing stuff they didn't want to do with their life and mm-hmm. wish it had turned out differently. And they'd never sort of heard that from show business people because that was the because you never heard about it, how it didn't work out. Yeah, right. That's not something show business talked about. So they were hearing like the back seedy side of sort of Hollywood of, mm-hmm. of two guys who were like, I thought this would be better. Uh, and so people really connected. It was sort of like a, a, a big cult following. We had, like we would sell out shows, but not have as many listeners as other, other podcasts. Mm-hmm. Got a lot of like, well, we tapped into something because we got a lot of letters from people who said we kind of changed their life and made them try to become more creative again. Like they'd given up on it, but mm. decided to give it another go and, and, Sort of made made people realize that it isn't necessarily about making a living. Like being creative is about uh, keeping yourself happy. Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of people don't because you get tied up in the the wanting to make a living at it. But yeah, <clears throat> if you realize because you know it was it was funny when I moved out to L.A. I remember I was driving around and I was like, because I was from the Bay Area and and I got down there. I said, what is different about this place? And then I realized that. People spend a lot of time making their yards look cool down here, <laughs> and they spend a lot of time on the the landscape of their property. And I was like, "Oh, it's because there's a lot of people who want to be creative and they can't, and they're just finding any outlet they can." Mm-hmm. And I don't know why, but that made me just realize that, like, yeah, it's not about making money; it's about just doing it to be happy, mm-hmm. and then hope something comes of it. And so we try to get that message across in the podcast, even mm. though, and people went on this sort of, it was about our lives, so they went on this journey with us of, like, I don't know how many times I talked about quitting comedy, and, and Greg did too. Uh, I think at a point I did quit for six months or something while doing the show, and then, you know, stuff stuff happens, and, yeah. and then you're doing it again, but... But I think the underlying message was just be creative for yourself. Yeah. And that sort of tapped into a lot of, you know, people. Yeah, it's and I think it's still, you know, it's 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 very relevant now. It seems like it's really picking up steam now. <coughs> yeah, I think this is a really, you know, that this is an example of why you should do that. Mm-hmm. Why you should be creative for the sake of being creative. Because if you don't think of it as a way to make a living, then it sort of opens up more doors, right? As yeah. to what you can do. Then you can do whatever the fuck you want. Yeah. And with the internet and everything else, you can do whatever you want. And even though not that many people might listen or 
or look at what you're doing. Some are, and some are getting something out of it. Like, mm -hmm. if you're affecting 10 people, isn't that better than affecting no people? Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, so, yeah, it's, it's an important time to do that, I think. Mm -hmm. Were you doing the... the um uh, the dollop and uh, walk in the room at the same time, or did they? Did you end one? They sort of, <clears throat> they sort of collapsed, and came uh, and sprouted up <laughs> at the same time. Right. So, walking them got really complicated because my career started going really well because of Marin, mm -hmm. and Greg was still having his his difficulties, and uh, and. And I, I think it caused sort of a little bit of a fracture in the podcast. Um, there was definitely resentment building, mm. um, and uh, and then here, there was so there was a minority of the podcast, a small minority of the podcast um, fans, who sort of tapped into this idea that we were losers and wouldn't let it go, <laughs> uh, and. And so I, I was like, well, <clears throat> we have to push against that. And but Greg was still in a place of, you know, he was he was depressed because he was going through harder stuff. Because mm -hmm. when you come when you come down from a peak, it's a lot harder than when you're just getting going. Right? Yeah. Or it never had to happen at all. I think it's it's much harder. So. Uh, so there was some tension between us, but it wasn't anything that I don't think could have been worked out. But the fans, the the small minority of fans, who wouldn't let go, and you would you would go on like I would go on my Facebook page, and there and I would post something, and someone would just be like, "Yes, yeah, because you're a fucking loser, right?" And I'm just like, "I don't like I don't have any interest in this." <laughs> and then Greg went to Australia, and, and for six weeks, and I had. Gareth, who's the my my host of the podcast, come on and do an episode of um, Walking the Room as a guest, and people really loved him, mm. and that upset Greg because mm. he was, you know, he's not there, and all of a sudden people are talking about how great the podcast is, and already he's struggling in his career. So yeah. you know, it was kind of like a double double whammy for him. So uh, he acted out a little bit, and I was at the end of my rope, and it just led to this. I just I just stopped it. Mm -hmm. And um, and then I had always I had been thinking for a while that podcasting was changing. It had previously been guys sit around talking and that's it. Yeah. And there was no sort of structure to it. It was just comedians chatting, and you would hear that even on tech shows. Like they would be talking about stuff, but I would listen to a tech show. I'd be like, "Well, they're doing the same thing. It's just a bunch of guys trying to be funny chatting." And mm -hmm. and then. Uh, I was like, well, there's, it's, th this is going to move in. This is going to evolve into another thing. And it's, they're going to want content. And also, I don't want to talk about myself anymore. Like, it, I'd spent four years talking about myself. I was tired talking about myself. So uh, I, I started thinking up the, I thought up the dollop as a podcast. And the idea was to re write up a story from history that was unknown and read it to a different comedian every week. Mm -hmm. And that would be the podcast. But then when that happened with, <clears throat> with walking the room, I, I sort of felt because Greg said don't do the podcast with anyone else when I was gone, and I sort of felt like, well, I want to do a podcast, mm -hmm. so maybe I'll just start the dollop. And then I did one episode with Gareth, and it turns out like that was, like it's like the tailor made for him, and the reaction was off the charts. So I was like, okay, this will be the podcast. Like it just kind of all fell into place. Mm -hmm. 
And then, so it literally, like, when one ended, the other started immediately. Right. And kind of took off. Uh, yeah, so, and now, and then they just kept building and building, and now it, it is what it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did it find its voice almost straight away, do you think? <coughs> or did you That's interesting. I think it did. Yeah. I think it really found its voice almost immediately. I think that it also, um, it reflects, the, the mood of it sort of reflects what is happening at the time. Because mm-hmm. I know some people have been, it's been a lot more serious lately or it's been a little more heavy lately. And it's like, well, yeah. <laughs> I, I, and, and I think that, like, so this is a creative thing. So I gave an example of, of, of how your sort of unconscious seeps into what you're doing creatively, even if you're doing a history show. So Patton uh, Oswalt's wife, Michelle, died, and we were very, very good friends with them. And um, uh, so, you know, it was it was like it was shocking because it happened just sort of out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. My wife was just completely devastated. And and if you've ever experienced grief, you sort of it's almost like you're concussed. Mm. You can't remember things. You're just kind of in a day like we forgot to feed our dog. We forgot to feed and give our dog water for three days. So mm. we had to rush it to the vet. Like you're just not, you're not there. <clears throat> and I took a couple weeks. Off. I just explained to everybody I couldn't do the podcast. And then I, and then I was like, after a couple weeks, I was like, all right, I got to start getting back into, and I started writing, uh, I started looking for a history story as, as I do, you research stuff. And a lot of times I look for something that might correlate to today, but I was just like, I'll just find an interesting story that doesn't have anything to do with anything. And then I start writing this story up. I don't remember what it was now because I deleted it, but I got about eight pages in and I was like, so I'm writing a story about a girl who lost her mother when she was five and her name is Alice, which is Patton's daughter's name. Mm-hmm. And and I was like, God, this is just crazy. Like your, your brain just goes to stuff mm-hmm. whether you're doing it consciously or not. Like it just tries to work stuff out. So, so the podcast... Create on a creative level, it's about it's it's about history, but on a creative level, I'm clearly working shit out through the podcast. Yeah. Right? And that was probably the greatest example of like, yeah, so this will this podcast will go up and down based on my moods or mm-hmm. whatever I'm feeling at the time. Yeah. Even though it's a history podcast, it's also like there's always an underlying message to each episode. Yeah. And so that's gonna come from me consciously, but it's also gonna come through me unconsciously, right? That's what creativity is. Yeah, yeah, like the the recent one about the um, the Inuit story, and it's yeah. about how all it takes is that small percentage of yeah of white men to screw everything. Totally, up. that's exactly right. <laughs> yeah, and you th- and you and you don't realize until it's over. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've I've written one and then gone back to it a couple of days later and be like, oh, that's what that's about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> mm, what's yeah. your process then? So you you said you can. Like, work stuff out but wh- where do you get this where do you get the idea of the story from so i have a <clears throat> well th- so i have a master list that it started with me just searching mm-hmm. on the internet which is a very complicated process because people have sort of gamed the search system by putting in keywords so mm-hmm. you can't use like strange weird but like you can't do that anymore to find stuff yeah uh so at the beginning it was it was hard and i would mostly uh, go down wormholes, like find a blog, and then it would link to another blog, and link to another blog, and I'd just be reading and reading and reading, and mm-hmm. then I'd find a story. Usually online, the stories are very s- short, so you can't like you have to then go and find other the beginning and the end and a lot of other stuff. So you know you're cobbling together a bunch of stuff from books and whatever. 
but um <clears throat> now it's it's a much different process so i get constantly get um recommendations mm-hmm. from fans so i have a lo- a large list um of of possible topics but i still find myself because it's why one of the reasons i started the podcast is cuz i just like going online and reading stuff so i still find myself just searching and searching and searching mm-hmm. And it's and that's what the process is. Is it's sort of going down a wormhole and and clicking here and, and this person likes this blog and this person like this blog and you're just clicking and going through stories and it's mm-hmm. just tons of different links that people have up on their their sites and, and then you find something that's interesting that might be relevant, you know. Mm-hmm. And do you, do you have a way of knowing when you've gone too far or too deep? Because I remember I was. Uh, when I was in my 20s, I was working in the West End in a cinema. It was like a miserable job and sitting in a dark auditorium for 12 hours and watching um, the Pelican Brief like 46 times. <laughs> in <a row> or <laughs> and uh, there was a, a bookstore around a corner called Watkins, which was all esoteric and, and uh, conspiracy stuff. And I picked up a book there and it led to like five other books. And I picked those yeah. up and then it just kept going and going. And then... Luckily, I fell out of the, the back end of it and wasn't like, everything is the Jews. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, you can, there's definitely like a, a moment where you can feel like this is, I'm going too deep into this or I'm, I'm getting obsessed with this. Do you ever get that? Or? Uh, yeah, that's interesting. Um, it's, not, it's not the same as, I, I know what you're talking about with the conspiracy sort of thing because that's a wormhole that just gets crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, with this stuff, you can get, you can definitely go down a pretty dark hole. Like if you want to, there's definitely people out there who are trying to reframe sort of what history is all the time and what the country is all the time. So I definitely think the trap for me is to avoid going too dark Mm -hmm. because you can really, I mean, it's really ugly if you really look at our history, it's like d- horrifying. And yeah, like one example is I kept getting um, suggestions to do Rosewood or, or the Tulsa, Ho- Tulsa, Oklahoma riots, which were basically white people a- annihilating a community. Of, mm-hmm. like, this was the Black it, Wall Street. It, it, it was ethnic cleansing in small towns. Yeah. I mean, there, mm. there's no other way to put it. It was just the, the murder of, of black communities. And so you would get a lot of those, and it's like, well, like, how do you make that funny? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, we want we want to teach and educate, but at the same time, it needs to be entertaining. Mm-hmm. So I did find a couple stories of, of a whole town lynching a black guy for a completely unjustified reason. Mm-hmm. So that to me was like a trade off, in a way, but still super dark. Yeah. Uh, but there's always a temptation to go, well, f- like now, today, after Jeff Sessions got, yeah, to go, well, fuck you. How about I do? How about I tell you about the Red Summer in 1919 when, when thousands of blacks were killed all over the country for being black? Like, w- let's 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 like, there's a total temptation to be like, let's go. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but you know, yeah, uh, what I'm trying to do with this podcast is sort of illuminate the realities of what people have done. So if you go too dark. There's pushback to that because then it's like, was that fair? It's fair in the sense that it happened, but if you paint America as that picture, like, well, what were people in California doing then, or Washington? Were they doing that? Mm-hmm. So it's it's uh, it's sort of complicated in that way. 
Like I definitely think for every for every racist there was as we know from the Civil War, there was a guy who wasn't, uh, you know, wasn't down for what was happening. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a hard sort of thing to balance, mm. I think. But I've gone really dark. There's There was an episode that no one will ever hear about. The Cochrane 8, I think, or 12, but they were, they were guards in Cochrane Prison in California who were setting up, uh, taking gang members and having them do uh, gladiator fights. <laughs> wow. And they would sometimes just kill the guy, kill one of them by shooting. They would let them fight it out, and then they would just shoot one. Wow. Uh, it was just, I mean, it's like out of science fiction. And yeah. we did the podcast, and I was like, well, that was awful. Mm-hmm. And I just I just deleted it. Because mm. like, I don't know, what, what, do you, like, what do you get out of that? Yeah. Like, aside from, the, I mean, the big part of the story is that they all got off because a, a jury of their peers didn't give a shit. Yeah. But... The darkness of that story, does that make the point you want to make, that there's not justice in the world? Yeah. It's it's a little too heavy. Mm-hmm. It, it turn, it, you don't want to turn people off yeah. from hearing it, you know? And there's definitely been episodes where I've crossed the line. I don't know if you ever heard the penguin one. <laughs> <laughs> in Australia, they turned penguins into oil for a few years. <laughs> <laughs> and it's one of the most horrifying stories ever. Mm. And I did it at a live show, and I think I broke a lot of human beings. <laughs> 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 so there's lines that I cross, and I don't realize I'm crossing them until it's there. And I'm like, wow, this is really terrible. <laughs> yeah. Um, so with the live shows, you've been doing more of those recently, or is that just the... Do, do you like combining the idea of like a, a stand-up routine with the podcast? It's really... Or? Yeah, it's really fun to do the live ones. Um it's fun, you know, the getting the instant reaction, you know, mm-hmm. you really can't beat it. Uh, yeah, it's like a new, it's like a, because f- we did it for so long without doing that, but it's it's really fun to to do live shows. And then we often bring in a, a, another guest, you know, mm-hmm. and so that creates a new, another dynamic. But I, yeah, I love the live shows. And, and honestly, the reason we're doing a lot of live shows now is because we're more popular than we can, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Way to make money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, do you think that podcasting is maybe partly because there isn't that, that comedy radio here, um, but also because a lot of comedians have already found their voice? Do you think that's why it's such a a, a, um, a draw for comedians? Well, so, yeah, podcasting is a weird thing for comedians. So, you know, if you notice, it's, it's dominated by white guys. Mm. And there's a reason for that. Um, so my career, I, I definitely have a career that was affected by being a white guy in the sense that, you know, it's an affirmative action thing. It's, it's, uh, my, my, my manager has always said to me, you, you would be so much farther along if, if, if that system wasn't in place where they're, they're trying to get black faces out there and female faces. And, and my response is like, my career has been like, I didn't get a comic central half hour because of it. Like I was always the guy who just didn't make the cut because of that and tons of shows and stuff. And, but I'm, I'm also like, yeah, I mean, that that's what happens now. Like guys like me maybe don't get a break because other people have fucking suffered for 200 years. Like, yeah. like the, I don't really have a lot to complain about <laughs> in that area. Um, so, so it, Wait, where were we going? Where were we going with this? Uh, comedians and podcasts. Yeah, so so when you first saw podcasting come out, it was a lot of white guys. Mm-hmm. 
a lot of white guys like me who uh, I think were funny, like a lot of them I think are very funny, but we just weren't getting a chance. Because at the end of the day, there are so many white guys doing comedy, right? I mean, mm -hmm. it's just a glut of them. So that means there's a glut of white guy comedians who aren't getting a chance. So uh, podcasting was a way to do an end round show business. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, I think at the beginning, that's that's what it was. It was a way to do end round show business. It was a way to like Jimmy Pardo is a classic example. Jimmy Pardo couldn't get anything going, and then he did his podcast, and people loved it because he's a hilarious guy. Mm -hmm. But he was also one of a million white guys out there that's actually really funny. Like, you know, what are you going to do? So when he hits the ground running on a podcast, he already has his voice. He knows who he is. Um, so I think the audience audiences were really attracted to that. But it's funny now. So I, I booked the Los Angeles Podcast Festival, and we're mm -hmm. like, you know, we want diversity. We want all these voices. And it's so hard to get African-American or female because once they hit, they're so sought after like then everybody wants like the two dope girls is a great example, like a really funny podcast, two really funny, uh, uh, women, uh, black women. And it's so hard to book them because once they hit, it's like, there's the, there's two black women doing a podcast. <laughs> and again, it's the same thing. It's a sea of white guys. And then as soon as someone pops out and then it's, and then it's like last year, people were like, how come you didn't have any, how can you have that many people of color? And I was like, Jesus, if you knew the fucking calls we made and the people we tried to get, like, it's just an endless attempt, but mm -hmm. it is still a medium filled with white guys. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting. But, you know, the so so a lot of those white guys, guys who found their voice, couldn't do anything with it, started their own podcast. And I think that's changed a little bit now. Like, I think if you, if you start a podcast now, it's harder to find an audience because there's so many podcasts. Mm -hmm. At least for white guys, I think I think women still are looking for like. Uh, my favorite murder is a great example. Like that's just a two very funny women who found a whole sort of true crime, but funny, mm -hmm. and that thing exploded because yeah. women want women to do this, and and African Americans want African Americans to do it. Like they they want them to, you know put their voice out there and do these things. And Karen and Georgia is a great example of two women who have great voices and they did it and off they went, you know, now they're, now they're killing it. Mm -hmm. It's, it's a really interesting sort of medium and, and to see how show business has affected what podcasting is by restricting what artists can do. Mm -hmm. And now artists can do what they want. Yeah. It's fascinating. There's a lot of, there's a lot of dynamics with, diversity and all that stuff involved in it and how it came to be and all that stuff. Yeah. Mm. Are you, you're involved with the LA Podfest, right? You yeah, one of the founders. And uh, yeah. And was it last year the first year or was it? No, it, uh, that was our fifth year. Fifth year? Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. Wow. Yep. And um, so it's, and that's an annual thing where you, um, what's the format? I, so, uh, so we do, we do a weekend, uh, we usually have like 35, 40 podcasts, mm -hmm. uh, mostly comedy. Uh, and then you just buy a weekend or a day pass and you go and it's, it's like Saturdays, usually like noon to 10 or something. Mm -hmm. And then all day Sunday and it's smaller on Friday, but we usually have like four or five rooms going at once. And it's just like a, you know, festival where you can go and see your favorite podcasts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's 
pretty cool. I mean, there's definitely like a little community that's been created. Yeah. People people now who came the first year now like book hotel rooms together and like they've all met each other and it's like a reunion every year. No, oh, right. Yeah. The yeah. podcasting community is a really sort of cool community. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like um like again the whole creating to to make you happy it seems like once you're in one of those worlds that there is such a, a, a level of support that yeah isn't there when it's a financial thing totally 100 percent. yeah it's funny so there was another festival that started last year and uh they tried a, a vip um thing where they you know you can get in before so when <laughs> you line up at the door there'll be a vip line and then another line you can sit where you want and mm-hmm. you get like a couple free drinks a day and when we when we did our festival last year, the first people were, people were like walking in. Thank God you don't have this VIP crap, <laughs> like because podcasting is sort of uh, this democratic version of show business. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not. There's no gatekeepers. You put out what you put out. The people like it or they don't, and then there's no hierarchy to it. So, uh, so I think people were very offended to see the VIP thing. It sort of went against the spirit of podcasting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Um, with uh, with um and being in a writer's room, do you, is that something you enjoy? As a, yeah, as a I mean, I think it depends. I mean, you know, that's the that's the first time I've been on a show for a long time. Like I've just mm-hmm. done pilots. Yeah. Um, yeah, I did like it. I mean, there's, there's weird thing. There's weird rules to it where you're supposed to not use words and other, you know, like you're supposed to approach things very cautiously and I'm not like that. I'm just, very <laughs> <laughs> I'm just very blunt. Uh, so, uh, but yeah, I really enjoy it. I really like working with Mark. Um, I think that we sort of really saw eye to eye and that made it easier, I think, than, mm-hmm. you know, maybe other jobs might be. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I like being in a writer's room. I, I I think it's fun, but again, I've heard so many stories of the nightmare scenario, which I haven't had. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, Mara was kind of a, a dream job, you know, um, but you go into a sitcom and, you know, there's, there's still ones that have cots and then you got to sleep there and mm-hmm. you know, that's still, that's still happening. Yeah. And that's how fun is that? Like I wouldn't, want, I would, I would get up and go, I don't want to do this anymore. And, yeah. You know? Uh, but yeah, I like it. I hope, uh, hopefully, I get another one at some point. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, when you're you're doing, um, are you doing more features writing now, or is that something you're doing for yourself? Or are you? I'm gonna. So, uh, <laughs> I found a dollop story that I didn't make into a dollop because it was such a good story. Uh huh. So uh, me and a friend optioned it, and, mm. and we're going to write a feature. But I, features are, um, when I started writing, mostly doing rewrites, uh, features back in the day, it's changed so much since then. There's not as much original material. and, and um, like, like I had a meeting, and, and they were like, go through our list of owned properties and see if there's anything you'd like to write. And <laughs> I was like, that sounds not fun at all. Yeah. <laughs> um, so... I found a very unique, interesting story. So we optioned it, and we're going to write it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not its not something I'm really excited about, feature. Feature writing is hard. Mm, and, yeah. Uh, I think I, I liked Marin was a cool show because I like the way it evolved season to season. I mean, like how you can 
sort of subtly change the characters and do little things and sort of keep this thing alive. I, that to me is more interesting than sort of writing one story. Mm-hmm. So we'll see. I, I, I keep, I'm getting a lot of, you got to pitch a thing. You got to pitch a new show. You got to pitch a new show. And I should. But <laughs> <laughs> I just like doing the podcast. <laughs> mm. What about directing? Do you? Is that I really like. It's so funny. I always thought I would hate directing, but I really love directing. Uh-huh. I thought uh, I thought that directing meant you had to have tons of technical knowledge. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it turns out <laughs> <laughs> that there are people all around you whose job it is to have technical knowledge, mm-hmm. and you just have to trust them. And then your job is to say, "This is how I see things." And then their job is to execute it mm-hmm. and or say that, that won't work and this is why. And then you adjust. Uh, but I think I'm good at directing because I because have being an, a trained actor and 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 have having acted for so long. But also. I when, when I know when I know something's right, I'm fine. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And I yeah. think I think uh, I realize that's the. The feedback afterwards was people like, no, you, that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to go, no, I got it. Let's do this. And no, I want that. And I'm, I'm good at being opinionated and making mm. decisions, you know? Yeah. So apparently that's what it is. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's like 20 or 30 people asking you a question every yeah. 30 minutes. It's and just... I, and I didn't know that like, that's sort of, that's sort of what I am is I'm like, just go, yes, no, that's right. And, and that's what I've always been. So yeah. it makes sense that, that, uh, that would work for me. Uh, yeah, I've, I've reached out to a couple. Of, like, it's hard to get directing work, obviously. But now that I have that, I've reached out to a, a couple of friends that have shows and said, "Hey, get me in there." Mm-hmm. But I'm gonna. We're doing a thing. All things comedy is the network I'm on, mm-hmm. and we're we've combined with a studio. So I will direct. Um, I might write my own show and and do it on there, and then yeah. I would direct it. Mm-hmm. I would write it and direct it, and um, and then you know take that route but if i can get some friend like a friend to you know let me direct a, a show i just need to get two or three under my belt and then you can start getting work but yeah yeah i'd really like to it's fun mm. well thank you for coming down sure um is there anywhere that you want people directed to see you like I, the dollop I'll, just I'll, the dollop that's yeah fine. that's all i really care about at this point um <laughs> yeah so we're doing a live tour uh you can go to the dolloppodcast.com um but listen to the show if you know, right? Listen to the listen to the doll if you like it. Go to the live shows. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's it. Cool. Well, thank you, Dave. <laughs> Thanks. That's it for the show. We will be back in two weeks. You can find us online at whoiampodcast.com and contact us by email at whoiam at gmail.com or by phone at 818-308-4066. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, there is a submissions form on the site. We're also on iTunes where you can leave a rating if you feel inclined. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Jamie Gamble, and this was This Is Who I Am.